I'd like to thank Chris and Oak Church for uh, giving me this opportunity this morning. Um, our, our relationship goes back with the Breslins to Div School, but uh, to Oak Church all the way back to the gathering. Um, Chris mentioned Jubilee Home, which is a project I sort of ran into in Divinity School by accident and um, is, is now uh, what I spend most of my time working towards. Um, and uh, we couldn't be more thankful for the relationship we have with the gathering in Oak Church. Um, we, uh, this has been a long process. We graduated in 2011, is that right? And had I known that like in 2016, we would not be serving young men in Durham yet, uh, I would have not chosen this path. Uh, but to the credit of Oak Church and gathering, um, they're one of the congregations and one of the just groups that have really supported us and seen this vision and um, remained with us as we've sort of had some peaks and valleys and some um, interesting adventures trying to get to the point we're at now. So uh, as Chris mentioned in the slides, uh, Jubilee Home is, is going to be a home for young men coming out of incarceration um, back into the Durham community, um, particularly kind of transition age young men. So as opposed to like a group home sort of setup, it's, it's really more like a frat house. Um, it's, it's, I mean, that, for, for lack of better description, that's really the kind of model we're going off of where um, sort of men grow together and through one another and um, learn the things they need to learn to sort of survive and, you know, feed themselves and the stuff that we do every day that we don't recognize was taught to us in supportive environments. So, um, as far as updates go, I've never, I haven't said this publicly and I'm a little hesitant to just because of our prior experiences, but uh, we expect to actually close on a property in a week, which has been um, the major, the major stumbling stone to this process has been a property. And we've, we have come within a week of closing before, so I'm a little, um, it's not in the bag yet, but um uh, we're pretty excited about it. Uh, we, the Durham, the Durham housing market. You guys may know it's a little, uh, a little exciting right now. It's not great for nonprofits trying to purchase affordable housing, uh, but uh, we decided to take the plunge. We entered into the auction home market, which, if you like eBay, don't do it. Um, it's kind of like eBay on steroids. It's a dangerous world, but uh, we have we we have a property that we're very excited about, and that we you know hope when we get into it doesn't you know have a floor missing or something like that so we'll see uh, but we're excited we're excited about that and uh, we're excited to be working towards a, a physical progress and not just uh, administrative progress so i uh, thank the oak church for um, walking with us on that on that um, journey we've really we've really appreciated that this morning we're going to jump into david's time in the wilderness um, as, as you guys have been working through Samuel. And, and at this point, David's in the wilderness because he's fleeing from Saul. Um, a few weeks ago, you know, David kills Goliath, which saves Israel from this terrible battle. And, and then everyone loves David. And Saul's like, wait a second. Problem. Everyone loves David. What about Saul? And I don't know what you guys did. Last I, didn't mean to, I didn't mean to bring in the reference there. That was completely accidental. Um, I don't know what you guys covered too much last week, but we are, we've reached the point where Saul can no longer deal with David in his court. And so he has determined he's going to kill David. And because of his relationship with Jonathan, David's got the little heads up and he books it. 
So here are these words from 1 Samuel 24. Even as Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was informed that David was in the the Engedi wilderness. So Saul took 3,000 men selected from all Israel and went to look for David and his soldiers near the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens beside the road where there was a cave. Saul went into the cave to use the restroom. Meanwhile, David and his soldiers were sitting in the very back of the same cave. David's soldier said to him, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he promised you, I will hand your enemy over to you, and you can do to him whatever you think best. So David snuck up, and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe, but immediately felt horrible that he had cut the corner. The Lord forbid, he told his men, that I should do something like that to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, because he is the Lord's anointed. So David held his soldiers in check by what he said, and he wouldn't allow them to attack Saul. Saul then left the cave and went his way. David also went out of the cave and yelled after Saul, My master, the king! Saul looked back. David bowed low out of respect, nose all the way to the ground. David said to Saul, Why do you listen? When people say, David wants to ruin you. Look, today your own eyes have seen the Lord handed you over to me in the cave. But I refuse to kill you. I spared you, saying I won't lift a hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Look here, my protector. See the corner of your robe in my hand? I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. So know now that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, and yet you are hunting me, trying to kill me. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but I won't lift a hand against you. As the old proverb goes, evil deeds come from evil doers, but I won't lift a hand against you. So who is Israel's king coming after? Who were you chasing? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be the judge and decide between you and me. May he see what has happened, argue my case, and vindicate me against you. As soon as David finished saying this to Saul, Saul said, David, my son, is that your voice? David made a solemn pledge to Saul not to kill his family, and then Saul went back home. But David and his soldiers went up to the forest. So David is in the wilderness and encounters Saul in an interestingly graphic way. The thing about the wilderness, though, is that by definition, by, you know, verbal lineage, it's wild. But in English, I, I'll be fair, I didn't do the Hebrew research, so anyone who's, you can correct me later. Uh, in English, wild means a lot of different things. You know, wild could, someone can have a wild thought that's just counterintuitive or countercultural. 
of a two-year-old. A two-year-old can be wild. Frequently, it turns out, even at five in the morning. Wild can refer to seclusion, stillness. It can connote great danger. It can mean quiet. It can mean loud and roaring. It can mean respite or a struggle for survival. Depending on the context of how we use the word wild or wilderness, these can mean polar opposite things. And maybe even the opposites at the same time. That's the uniqueness of the wilderness. This complex interplay between tranquility and hazard. It's the sweet nourishment of a blackberry accompanied by the requisite pick of the thorn. It's a trickle of rain that runs down and plays a melody as it forms a pool, but then, become, but then continues to run down and becomes a destructive torrent downstream. It's the quiet starkness of a desert setting created by the deadly heat of that same setting. The wilderness, the wilderness has a particular effect on those who enter into it. The wilderness teaches its residents that they have to listen carefully, watch closely, proceed cautiously. It requires a certain amount of stillness. It requires one's thoughts and actions to become integrated forcing the mind to quiet. I think that's why wilderness can be considered a respite. It forces us to return to a more basic level of ourselves, sort of a instinctive or biological level. But the wilderness does this. It cools down those noises, brings us back to the simpler existence with a hint of menace. In the wild, you listen more carefully to hear a bird's song, but also to be sure there's not a black bear anywhere near. You look closely for that rare wildflower that you only see deep in the woods, but you're also making sure there's not a copperhead under the branch you're under. In the wild, you proceed slowly, cautiously. You make sure that the path you're on has steady footing. In short, the wilderness, it demands attentiveness. In today's story, David in the wilderness, and he's been there for a while. He's been there a long time, and he's attuned to these things. Running from King Saul, who wants to assassinate him because he's become an unwitting political rival, David and his loyal band of followers have been running for a while. They've gone to Nob, from Nob to Gath, from Gath to Adullam's cave, to Mizpah in the Moab desert, to Hareth forest, 
to the desert plain of Ziph. And now they're hiding in the caves of the Engedi. If you're like me, those words don't mean anything to you, but if you look at a map, basically they've covered all of the non-inhabited places in Israel, all of the uninhabitable places in Israel. And for David, this duality of wilderness, this tranquility and hazard is ever present. Psalm 63, it reads like David composed it while sitting on the desert cliffs of the Engedi looking out. As he's aware of the deprivation of the wilderness, hear these words, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness. God, you are my God. I search for you. My soul thirsts for you. It thirsts for you as a parched and thirsty land that has no water. But I shall behold you in the sanctuary and see your might and glory. For truly your faithfulness is better than life. I lift up my hands and invoke your name. I am sated by you as with a rich feast. When I call you to my mind upon my bed... When I think of you in the watches of the night, my voice praises you, for you are my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I shout for joy. My soul is attached to you. Your right hand, it supports me. May those who seek to destroy me enter the depths of the earth. May they be prey to the jackals. But the king, the king shall rejoice in God. David gets the duality of his situation. You know, he's away from court. He no longer has to watch his every step around Saul. He's free to be him, but uh, he's free to rejoice in the Lord's blessing. And he's free to listen carefully, to watch closely, to proceed slowly to the presence of God. But it's a freedom that's informed by this other side of the wilderness. It's informed by the desperation of his situation. Looking out over the desert and the Dead Sea, David thirsts for God as he himself thirst in the desert. God for David represents a filling and fatty feast, even as David's empty stomach aches from their barren landscape. And David offers praises while still having to stay up at night and watch for safety's reasons. And finally, maybe, maybe as he sits on the cliff and gazes across, maybe he sees a pack of jackals and he wishes them luck finding some soft-flavored jerky to meet their needs in the desert. David's nearness to nature, this nearness to life and death and survival, it brings about this great moment of praise in Psalm 63 but it's a song that's fully aware of the surroundings 
the hardships, the perils. For David, God's not separate from his circumstances. It's not separate from the wilderness. David actually finds God in the wilderness. Not in a removed, God's watching over me sort of way, but the very fiber of the wilderness is woven together with and by God. And David recognizes both the craftsman and the craftsmanship. And in contrast, Saul can't see in the wilderness. For Saul, the wilderness is just another enemy, another barrier to his ambitions. In the wilderness, it's this antagonist in Saul's story. It's, it's become a character, and it's, it's actively stymieing him at every turn. And just before we get to this, this story in the cave, uh, there's a story about Saul and his men chasing David. They know where David and his men are, and they get to this hill, this, this rock that stands up in the middle of the desert, and they have this Tom and Jerry scene where they literally go round and round the rock, but they can't catch David because they're also just going round and round the rock. The wilderness is actively fighting against Saul, willfully keeping him from his goals. Maybe God is willfully keeping him from his goals. Now in the Engedi, Saul's blindness to the landscape before him not only undermines him, but it almost kills him. In need of some relief, or perhaps release, Saul steps out of the bright sun into this dark cave. And this sudden change in light, it renders him blind, as it would any of us. And it renders it impossible for him to recognize not just the scale of this cave, not just his surroundings, but the fact that there are 400 angry and tired men who would like to kill Saul sitting in this cave. And Saul, without even considering the possibilities of this cave or what it might hold or how large it might be and grand and beautiful, goes ahead and just lays it on a platter for David and his men and makes himself completely vulnerable. He turns away from them, turns his back to them, and then, I don't know much about Israeli clothing in the 10th century, but I assume he took off his belt with his sword on it. Saul's completely vulnerable because he's blind. And I'm sure David's men at this point, you know, you can almost hear them in the story, you know, they're gasping, they're looking at each other wild-eyed like, are you kidding me, bruh? There's at least one of them with his phone in the back, you know, doing the like. <laughs> Hoping he turned his flash off. I mean, you know, they're tired, they're hungry, they've been running. They don't have their families, they're ready to go, and like, this is the moment. They even say, David, God did this. God put Saul on this platter for us. Let's have Adam. This is it. You know, they're ready to go home as, as, you know, friends and, you know, this band to the future king. Not only are they ready to go home, they're ready to receive their rewards. But David, David's eyes are fully adjusted to the cave and to the complications. 
the complexities of how God works. David can see all of this in a glance, and he's able to see and understand Saul in a way I think his men can't, Saul can't, and even most readers probably miss, as I did. Saul's, at this point in the narrative, he's become this unpredictable, potentially even sort of unhinged leader. Instead of ruling a country, God's country, he's, he's wasting all these resources with this huge army in the desert that he's got to feed and care for, and they're chasing this band of outlaws, wasting all these resources. But he's still the king of the Israeli tribes. He's been ordained by the prophet Samuel, anointed by the Lord. So maybe jealousy or epilepsy, depending on whose commentary you read, have left him unfit to rule, but his blood is the Lord's, and human hands cannot shed it. And David sees this when no one else can, and David will not kill Saul. Not only will he not kill him, he will not let his men harm Saul. He feels guilty over just harming his cloak. David is able to see Saul's beauty and beast, Jekyll and Hyde, sacred and profane. And he recognizes that God's presence is in Saul. Just as he's able to see God's provision in a land that seems to offer no provisions, and he's able to find sanctuary in a cave that he can't sleep safely in, so David knows God's faithfulness. And so he can let Saul live. Even though this endangers his life, the end of the story doesn't have them hugging it out with Saul and going home. Saul returns home, and they get it back to the caves because they know there are 3,000 men, armed soldiers, following a guy who probably is going to want to kill David before he gets to the end of the hill. Saul, on the other hand, he doesn't recognize God in anything. We've already seen that he misses it in the wilderness, but indeed, he can't even perceive God's presence his participation in the life of Israel. It's that which dooms Saul's kingdom to begin with. Saul was set to become the kingdom, the king of Israel, and handed off to Jonathan, his son. But he loses that in a moment of impatience with the prophet Samuel. And when Saul and his army are delivered by this massive Philistine army and giant by a boy with a sling... Saul can't see God's anointing of David. He can only see a threat. And even now, as David spares Saul's life in the cave, Saul cannot see. David? My son, is that your voice? Saul can't see the presence of God as anything more than an asset or possession something David has and Saul does not. The presence of God is what makes David a threat. There's no respite or stillness or beauty in Saul's wilderness. No worshiping God from the cliffs, only threat, danger. 
fear. Saul's eyes, they fail to ever adjust to God's presence during his kingship. They can only see deprivation, whereas David's eyes can see abundance. And in the end, this is what sets David and Saul apart. This is what drives the whole narrative of this story. This vision or imagination or recognition or discernment it's the characteristic that allows David to become king. It allows him to accomplish great things even though he's fully human and makes some colossal mistakes. And if we were putting this in New Testament language, I think we could say that this understanding on David's part, it's what allows him to run with perseverance the race set before him as he fixes his eyes on God so that he does not grow weary or lose heart. But Saul lacks this brand of awareness. In fact, he even rejects it and rejects God's presence and holiness, even in himself, which he epitomizes, and I apologize, spoiler alert, in his suicide his final rejection of God's plan. But I think sometimes it's easy to sympathize with Saul. Sometimes it can be hard to see God. It can be particularly hard when God forces us into the middle of the wilderness or circumstances force us into the middle of the wilderness. When we're put in a situation where illness or financial survival sap our energy when we just want to sleep through our watch or when the pain of a sudden death or a divorce or a loss sends us crawling into a dark cave where we have no desire to see the light. These are moments when our eyes have a real hard time adjusting to low light, to seeing God's presence in our midst. Saul feared losing his kingdom. And if we want to be generous to him, we can look at history and know that when a king falls, it doesn't usually go well for that king's children. So maybe Saul was afraid for his children He had pretty good reasons to be distressed. Saul staring at his own wilderness. But instead of training his eyes, he reacts like a hurt animal, lashing out at David and forcing him to join Saul in his fear and his pain. See, David was more prepared to go into the wild than Saul. David grew up in the wild. Not in the wild of heartache and stress, but the actual wilderness. As a teenager about to stare down a giant, David rem reminds all of us in the king, I fought lions and bears as a shepherd boy. David grew up in the fields in the wilderness, and he grew up listening carefully for predators. He grew up watching closely for developing storms in the horizon and 
he grew up proceeding cautiously, making sure all of his sheep were accounted for. He even occasionally fought for his life. And so when David's forced into the wilderness at a dead run, his ears instinctively prick up. His eyes naturally begin to narrow to a squint. And his brain immediately adjusts into picking the right path as he runs into solitude. David's experience, it lends a guide to entering into the wilderness, a technique for acclimating our eyes in the darkness. David does not stroll into the wilderness to complete higher things, to contemplate higher things. It's not a stay at Walden Pond or a weekend at Black Mountain. David enters the wilderness against his own will, taking only a moment to cry with his brother Jonathan before he flees, leaving everything. But David had already developed the virtues to navigate the wilderness, the eyes to see God humping it with him. David knows to survive in the wilderness, he has to listen carefully, watch closely, and proceed cautiously. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, you are so faithful. Whether we are in the wilderness or walking with you in the garden, your presence is never more or less. As we enter into a time of prayer and move towards participating in the heavenly banquet with you, We seek your stillness and your quiet as we listen, watch, and walk slowly with you. Amen.